as we begin the final leg, uh, I, I, I started to say it sort of like I wanted to announce that we're beginning our descent on this fullness series. But if you've flown much, you know it's sometimes there's, you're in a holding pattern for a while. So uh, I don't anticipate any holding patterns. But there were uh, six messages that will take us through about um, mid-October, the Lord willing. The, the, the segment of this final fullness presentation is called Why God's People Go to Church. And we want to take a look at six reasons why in the Bible they gathered together. Gathering together is important. Now I need to say this, I know that there are folks that believe in small church settings. There are those that uh, are, are live. We have, we have a healthy congregation that can't be here uh, because of distance. I mean, when I say healthy, I'm not talking about physically healthy. I'm talking about a good number. We have a good number of folks that have become part of our fellowship that just can't be here every Sunday. That's what I meant by healthy, a good number. And then we also have folks that are part of our fellowship that maybe because of illness or their concern about virus, they, they watch at home. Hey, I, just so you're here, that's what I care about. Um, so we've got a good number that are spread out. We've got a good number that are here, but they're just at that time in their life that it's difficult, maybe a little risky for them to come out to the service. We understand that. So when I talk about coming to church, I'm talking about coming to church, whatever it looks like for you. So understand that. Um, we're going to be reading from John chapter 4, verse 23. I, I'm going to do this message, second service, a little different than I did first service. Uh, the Lord had been dealing with me about some principles and someone sent me this verse early this morning. It just really resonated with me. Second uh, Corinthians chapter two, verse four and five. This is not in your outline. Paul said, the message I preached and how I preached it was not an attempt to sway you with persuasive arguments, but to prove to you the almighty power of God's spirit. For God intended that your faith not be established on men's wisdom, but by trusting in his almighty power. Now, the, we're, we're going to do an introduction today uh, to these six reasons why God's people come to church. Um, the verse I'd like to focus on is uh, John chapter 4, verse 23, where Jesus was speaking to the Samaritan woman at the well. And the Samaritans and the Jews had a real falling out um, over worship. The Samaritans were uh, half Jew, half Gentile. And they didn't accept all of God's word. Uh, the Jews did, but the Jews didn't always live all of God's word. And they were kind of accusatory toward each other. One said you ought to worship in Jerusalem. One said you ought to worship at Mount Gerizim. And there was a great tension between the two. And Jesus said this. He said, a time is coming and even now has arrived. He said it's not, when he said it's coming, even has already arrived. He said it's being introduced, but it's not in full bloom yet. When true worshipers 
will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. Now what we're going to find out over these next following six Sundays is that there is, when we do church right, great power is the result. There's few things that are more frustrating than church done wrong. And we're going to talk about, even God says there's a time and it's better for you not to come. Now don't get all excited. Don't say, well, I'm going to, I'm going to follow pastor's preaching. I'm going to stay home next week. Uh, no, we don't get an attitude and say, well, it's just better for me not to go. No, if you got an attitude, believe me, it's better for you to go. Uh, um, the only time I ever missed church because of an attitude, and I was the pastor. That's scary. I was the pastor. But I was so frustrated with uh, some folks in the church. Not, And it wasn't at this church. It was decades ago. But I knew what I wanted to say, and I knew it needed to be said in love. And I didn't know for sure if I could say it in love. So I just got another preacher to come in and preach for me that day not because I was too mad to preach but I believe the pulpit is so important I believe the way things are preached are so important I didn't want to twist uh, a good thing into a bad thing by an inflection or something like that and that's why I want you to understand this is one of the most difficult messages I think I may have ever preached at this church and uh, I'm not apologizing you know Every once in a while when I preach a tough message, you know, folks wanting to encourage me, and it does, they'll say, Pastor, don't ever apologize for God's Word. And, and, and I know what they mean, and it means so much to me that they're caring for me. It's never crossed my mind to apologize for God's Word. Um, and, and I know that's not what they meant. They, what they were saying is, if God put this on your heart, preach it. But I, I never would apologize for God's Word. It doesn't need an apology but I also want to be sure I don't leave behind dead bodies unnecessarily, spiritually. And so I, I, I want to ask you to pray. I've had special prayer. This is one of the toughest messages I think I've ever preached at this church. And I hope that enough people are praying for me that when I get through it, you'll say, oh, that wasn't so bad. Well, you got the prayed over version, you know. Um, you understand what I'm trying to say. I was watching... Uh, my, my grandson was, uh, one of my grandsons was with me yesterday and we were sitting on the couch kind of resting between some pretty good activities while I was resting. He was ready to go. And um, a song, came, we were listening to a praise and worship channel, a song came up and I said, I can't believe it. I said, I've not heard anybody sing that song except me for years. Now, we may have sung it here. I don't know. I, I don't remember singing it here. But they played the song, and it's just an old worship song from the 70s. I love you, Lord. Or sometimes you sing, we love you, Lord, if you're singing together. I, I would sing it for you, but it's such a beautiful melody. I don't think I can do it justice. So, I mean, I can, I can sing what you're going to do with the butter when the roll is called up yonder. I can do that, but I don't... But this is a song that I sing every day. I told my grandson, I said, I sing, Papa sings this song every single day. I said, I haven't missed a day that I can remember in probably 12 years or more. I sing this song every day before I pray. This is the first thing I do when I start my prayer. Every day I sing, 
I love you, Lord, and I lift my voice to worship you. Oh, my soul, rejoice. Take joy, my king, in what you hear. Let it be a sweet, sweet sound in your ear. And I sing it one time, may sing it two or three times, but I sing it till I feel like I've registered, you know, and my heart is ready to pray. And he said, you sing that every time you pray? I said, every time. And that's the first time I'd heard anybody else sing it. Like I said, in my mind, I don't remember it being sung since uh, years ago, just before my oldest son was born. And he thought about it a minute. He said, you sing it every time? I said, every time. What are the words, Papa? And I went through and told him the words. He said, so this is your warm-up. <laughs> and I thought, well, I've never thought of it that way, but this is my warm-up. Yeah, this is, I want my heart ready to pray. This is my warm-up. And loved ones, I want to tell you what I believe. I believe with all of my heart that the last three years, this virus, the lockdowns, the horrific political atmosphere that dishonors our nation, dishonors our politicians, dishonors our citizens, um, everything we've been through, I think it's been a warm-up for what God is about to do. Now, I don't mean a warm-up for Him. I mean a warm-up for us. I believe uh, with all of my heart that we as a nation are under judgment. I've been fussed at for saying that, uh, that, you know, that's not positive, Pastor. You need to be optimistic. Oh, I am. If, if I wasn't optimistic, I'd, you know, maybe run to the hills and take my family with me. I do believe that God, you see, we know this. We know God wins. We just have a problem accepting his game plan. And his strategy. Um, I think we need to understand. And what I want to deal with today is to help you understand. You may think if your side can win an election or maintain control of a house or Senate or governor's seat or whatever it is. You may think that will win the battle. And I think that's important. I think elections are important. I think who's in power is important. The Bible says righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people, even if they don't believe it's a sin. No, I believe all of these things are important, but God is moving us to the place where we understand two things. Number one, if our problem, as Tony Evans says, if our problem was carnal, we could fix it with carnal solutions. But because our problem is spiritual, it can only be fixed with a God solution. And I think the biggest challenge, and guys, I hope you'll stay with me. I hope you'll hear my heart the way this is intended, not the way it could be misunderstood. I think we really need to understand that our problem is a spiritual one, and the way out is the problem is the same as the way in. We just do it in reverse. And I want to tell you that when God gave a remedy for a nation, this is what he said. He said, if my people who were called by my name will humble themselves and pray and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven 
and I will heal their land. You see, we, I've never seen a time in American history, at least not since the Civil War, when we have resorted to natural solutions for spiritual problems. And we have become so angry and so hostile. We have created a climate, and the church has joined in. We just do it in Jesus' name. We just pray in tongues right after we spout our poison, you know, to make it sound more palatable. But I've never known a time that the people are less understanding that this is because of what the church has allowed to happen. Now, I know that's offensive, and I know that doesn't sit well, but we, we need to go back to probably Second uh, Chronicles um, chapter 15, and Tony Evans was here a few weeks ago in May and preached a phenomenal message about this. Tony Evans said, if your problem is carnal or, or physical, he said, then you need to work hard to get physical solutions to the problem. He said, but if your problem is with God, no election solves the problem. No budget solves the problem. No political philosophy solves the problem. But he said, I've never seen a time when the church in America is doing more to lean into the flesh to solve spiritual problems than right now. In 2 Chronicles 15, Israel was under judgment, under severe judgment, and the Lord gave three reasons. He said, number one, he said there was no true God. Now that didn't mean that the true and the living God was off the scene. It meant from the perspective of Israel, they worshiped whatever God they wanted to worship. And they did not worship the one true God. Some did, but any God was acceptable. It's like it was in Rome. Christians weren't in trouble in Rome for worshiping the one true God. Christians got in trouble for worshiping the one true God and saying there is no other God. See, Rome wanted an atmosphere where everybody's free to believe what they want to believe. The narrative today says, well, this person has this truth, but you may have your own truth. So you've got to live life based on your truth. And loved ones, that is absolutely ludicrous because that leads to this is your God, that's your God, that's, or you can choose no God. The first problem in Israel is there was no God. The second problem that's listed I'm going to come to in just a moment the third one is that there was no law now there were plenty of laws uh, I, I've often said there's you know there's never been a law an American governmental system didn't like we have more laws than we can enforce and we don't enforce the laws we have so we're constantly in a quest for new laws. And that passage didn't mean they were just lawless. There were no laws. No, there were plenty of laws. But loved ones, a, a society that's going to be blessed of the Lord, this sounds counterintuitive, but there has to be one law. You see, when the Bible says um, where there is no vision, the people perish. And, and, and I've explained that before. That doesn't mean if a church has a vision statement, it's good. I mean, it may be good, but that's not what it's talking about. Um, the Bible does not say if you don't have a vision statement, you perish. The Bible says there must be a law that is the law of the land. 
there must be an all-authoritative, overruling system that a nation adheres, adheres to. And to various degrees, it's been Scripture. The, the, the United States was founded on Judeo-Christian principles. Now, they don't teach that anymore. They don't want our children to know that anymore. But you just go back to original sources and read about our nation. And even though it was not followed perfectly, it was founded on Judeo-Christian principle. You say, well, I just, I'm fed up with America. There's hypocrites. America's never lived up to what she said. And I think we ought to just burn it down. Well, let me tell you something. I pastored some of you for 30 years. Some of you would have got burned down a few years ago. I know a lot of pastors that would have got burned down a few years ago. Didn't mean you weren't a Christian. It meant you were learning to live out this new grace in your life. And nations have to do that too. I'm not making an excuse for slavery. I'm not making an excuse for Jim Crow. I'm not making an excuse for mistreatment of the American Indians. I'm, that's, that's not my point at all. My point at all uh, that I'm making, if anything, is this. We founded on a good foundation, but then we didn't live it out the way we should. So we've had to, be, we've had to go through wars. We've had to go through all kinds of problems in order to become what we said we believe in. It's just like you and I. Uh, ten years ago, you, you might not have even been qualified to teach a junior boys Sunday school class. But you didn't get kicked out of the church. You were part of the family and you were growing up. So I, I do want to say this, whether you're left or right or conservative or liberal, you need to give America a break. Because we've got a good foundation, we've got a good system, we've got a good constitution. The challenge is for us to live it out and to be sure that it's applicable for everybody. But I think we're fighting battles in the wrong place. I told you this was going to be very difficult. Um, here's the third thing that that passage said. No law, no true God. The, it was really number two on the list. No teaching priest. And loved ones, the biggest thing that has caused our problem in America is that there are no teaching priests. There are not many teaching priests. There are not many pastors that are willing to stick with the Word of God in its pure form because it's called intolerant. Uh, we are marginalized. We are ridiculed. I'm talking about pastors and churches. We are laughed at. And, you know, it used to be that we were just doubted. Then we were marginalized. Then we were uh, uh, laughed at. Then we were blamed with everything that's wrong. And the next step is that, you know, they're saying, I mean, politicians are saying it right now. If you are a Christian that believes in pro-life, you need to leave our state. We don't want you here. A candidate for governor in one of the largest states of the union said, if you believe what my opponent believes, I don't want your vote because there's such hate in your heart. I don't want it. Boy, what a manipulative playground statement. I don't want your vote because you're a hater. That's American politics right now. It used to be that when politics were spoken of, two sides or three sides 
that had differing opinions said, let's have a debate, let's talk. Maybe I can convince you of what I believe. Maybe you can convince me of what you believe, but we can, we can either convince one another or maybe we can find a compromise. Loved ones, that art of politics in America is lost. Right now, we're in a political climate where if you don't believe the right thing, we want you out of our state and we prefer you're in prison. Now, that's the kind of politics we've got right now. I know it's not everybody. I know that. I don't need to qualify every statement that I'm making. But um, we, we, we need to understand that if we want to turn America into her best possibility, oh, we need to repent of the past. We need to, we need to deal with our sins. Absolutely. We need to be sure that the justice system is fair and, and uniform across the board. I have no issue with those things. But we are driven by lawlessness and such hatred that we make, we make it impossible to go to that. We, we have too many buts. Christians do. I'm talking about the church. Uh, abortion is wrong, but. And loved ones, I've tried to answer so many letters and emails that I've gotten there is no such thing as a logical argument that says abortion is wrong, but. There are buts. This is a problem too, like abortion. This is a problem too, like abortion. But please don't try to convince me that saving the Tennessee tail, uh, snail darter is as important as stopping the wholesale abortion of our children. I know there are issues we need to resolve like rape and incest. I know that. But what we have, even the ministers, many ministers, about 30 of them in Columbia, wrote a letter and said, we're just going to bring children into trouble, especially if rape and incest occurs. They, they sounded so compassionate and they sounded so scriptural. But the problem is what they're saying is, yes, abortion is murder and yes, abortion is wrong, but there's just not enough that we can do to make a difference. My opinion is there's got to be something short of murder to solve unwanted pregnancies. Now, I, I need to go ahead and say this. We are pro-life. We're not pro-life, but I also know what that means. It means that those of us that are against abortion need to be ready to open our home to these children. Um, uh, if it's a case of abortion, I mean, uh, a case of rape or incest. If it's really a case of rape or incest, you take those things and put them over here. But if you take at least the last statistics I've seen, if you take the statistics of rape, incest, and the life of the mother at risk, you're still talking less than 4% of abortions. So, so I, just, I, I, don't, I don't want you to get blindsided by statistics that lie and I don't want you to put yourself in a situation where you have a right heart but wrong logic. Now, I, I, it's okay. I don't need any emails telling me where I'm wrong. I've, I've gotten so many. Um, and I'm, I, I'm not asking for this kind of discourse. In fact, part of it is I realize that for the last three years, I've tried to answer every letter. I've tried to accommodate every view. And loved ones, I've come to the point where I realize we can't accommodate every view. 
we can't give a voice to every perspective. There are things that we believe and there are things we don't believe. There are things that we think are right. There are things that we don't think are right. And just because something isn't perfect doesn't make it morally equivalent to something like pro-life. So I think I said all that to say this. We believe with all of our hearts that we are about to go into an era when the church, Christian life, and many other remnant churches are going to see the power of God manifested in ways we've never seen it manifested before. We're going to see grace open up to people whom we've never seen it opened up before. Um, and, And let me say this, we have nothing but compassion for those that are struggling with gender identity and, and, and sexual identity. We, and, and I'll tell you this, you say, a lot of you are saying amen you know, to no abortion, but some of you need to quit the hatred that you show to people who have abortion. You have to start loving people again. And uh, uh, I, I've never seen anything like this where you get shot at from both sides, like the fellow that escaped from a hospital during the Civil War and not realizing it, he put on Yankee pants and rebel shirt and got shot at from both sides. <laughs> Loved ones, I want to tell you, we need to quit endorsing a, a system of death, thinking that that will somehow cause life. And we need to quit making heroes out of men and women. We need to quit following a cult of personality. There are some of you that would follow the words of Donald Trump before you follow the words of Jesus. And I don't know why I'm looking back and forth. I guess left, right. But to you, it's right, left. So you can interpret it any way you want to. Loved ones, God is calling us to a place of maturity. I want to say this before we dig a little bit deeper. I believe one of the greatest keys to revival and restoration and America's destiny that we've never lived up to fully. I believe one of the greatest keys is if the African-American community of Christians can be willing to forgive the way they've been treated. Because I think, personally, my opinion, I think the African-American communion has the most to forgive. I think of all the people groups in America, they've been wrong from the very beginning wronged, not wrong, wronged from the very beginning. And if you are an African-American trying to serve the Lord, you have got a, a shovel load of wrongs to forgive. And if you can do that, I'm not talking about, I, I, know, I know people don't know how to apologize. I know sometimes people don't know how to express remorse. But if you can wrap your head around forgiveness, I think that will be a spiritual breakthrough unmeasured in this country. But I want to talk to the, to the right for just a moment. And I'm, I'm, I'm just laying it all out on the table. I'm a political conservative. Um, I'm, I'm political conservative because conviction, I think that's the best policy. But I've never allowed political conservatism to fill the pulpit unless it was a moral issue, things like abortion and, and, and what have you. But I want to tell you this, I have, I have been disappointed uh, in the last few years of how we have turned to a cult of personality and whether Donald Trump is good, bad, or ugly. 
we are creating a climate where that is not healthy. He may be our next president and he may be a great president if he gets elected president. But loved ones, you've got to start putting your trust back in Jesus and back in the words and not in Donald Trump. And, you know, I'm not getting into was he a good president or was he a bad president. Um, I, I want to tell you something. Uh, everything bad we could say about Donald Trump, we could say about Joe Biden. We, we, I said way back before the 2016 election, and boy, you talk about people getting mad at me. I thought, I must have missed, I must have missed said something. I went and listened to it a couple of times. I said, we are about to elect, elect the most hated president in American history. I said, the Lord has shown me that the next president, because there is a spirit of lawlessness and animosity, and I said, whether it's President Clinton or President Trump, we are about to try to weather a storm of absolute hatred, and we will be shocked at the way the next president is treated. And people came up and said, I can't believe you'd say that about Hillary Clinton. And I said, I didn't say that about Hillary Clinton. I said it about the next president. And I'd calm them down, and they say, you're just a racist. You, you just don't want a Democrat uh, a, a elected president. And I said, no. I said, you're not listening to me. Whether it's Hillary or Trump, they will be the most hated president in history. Yeah, that's what I thought. You're a racist. <laughs> and I'd end that conversation, and I'd think, boy. Then I'd walk, try to walk out the door. You're a, you're a socialist. You're a fascist. You, you, you're saying that people would hate Donald Trump. I just can't believe you're, 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 you're probably a, you're probably a pinko communist that wears lace on your drawers or, you know, just, and how dare you say that Trump would be the most hated president? He, he would be a good president. I said, I didn't say he wouldn't be a good president. I said, if he's elected, he will be the most hated president in American history. I didn't think I was going to get out of church that night. But how many of you would agree we elected the most hated president in American history and it would have been the same if it was Hillary as it was with Donald. Um, that's why the prophets missed so much. And I'm not anti-prophet. I think God did some refining in the prophetic community. And, and I think a lot of prophets have been refined. But loved ones, we have, we, we have become, the right has become, the right has become groupies. We've become groupies. Uh, we don't even think straight. We don't even think objectively anymore. If it's, if it's over here with Trump, we're right. The left has become a bunch of groupies. It doesn't matter if we're dealing with issues of life or whatever. It, you follow the party line. And I want to tell you, I'm profoundly disappointed in the left and I'm profoundly disappointed in the right. And the church is being given an opportunity to turn back. I'm not saying center because it, th that makes it a political view, but we need to turn back to hearing the Lord. You say, Pastor, I can, things are just calming down. No, they're not. They're just on breather till the midterms come. And I'm telling you that when the, as the closer we get to the midterms, this is going to ramp up. It's going to be nasty again. It's going to be hate-filled again. There's going to be, you can't believe this, you can't believe that. Um, I, 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 every time someone on the left disagrees with something I say, 
I'm a racist. Every time someone on the right disagrees with what I say, um, you know, uh, I'm, I'm a, well, I can't even use some of the words, but basically you're a, you're a fascist. You're not letting the free uh, expression of democracy work. Loved ones, I'm going to tell you, I'm, I'm going to just tell you the way it is. I love you with all my heart, and I think I'm a world-class pastor, and I think you need to listen to me. I think you need to quit, quit going from website to website until you find somebody that agrees with you, because there's never been a time when it's easier to do that. And if we are going to be the kind of person that, that sees God do these six things that we've listed, we're going to have to let what we've become be stripped away and purged from us. Now, I want to say this. God said, and I'm kind of jumping around in the outline. I find six reasons, and there, and there may be more, but I find six reasons in the scripture why God's people are told to come together. Number one is to worship God. Something phenomenal happens when we come together to worship God. Do you know that when you worship the Lord on your own, it's beautiful? But do you know that when you worship together, the word coming together and agreeing in prayer is the word symphoneo. It's the word we get symphony from. And when we come together to worship, it's the difference between a symphony orchestra and somebody playing a tuba solo. We come together to be strengthened in Christ. There are some things that happen when we come together that don't happen when we don't come together. And there's strengthening that's special. Um, we come together to be equipped to do the work of the ministry, to conduct kingdom business together, to be touched and made whole by Jesus, to be empowered to spread the gospel. Loved ones, all of these things, all of these things become exponential when we come together. Now, it could be a physical gathering. It could be online. But um, I, I want to tell all of you, and I know we've got some, and I love you. It wouldn't hurt you or embarrass you for anything. It's one thing to worship alone because you have to. But don't get the mindset that me and Jesus, we got our own thing going. There's great power in coming together, and only those of you my age would understand that song. Now, when Saint, back to the outline, when St. Ignatius of Antioch was on his way to the Colosseum to be martyred, and his martyrdom was a, was a gruesome thing, he was not disrespectful to Caesar. He just wouldn't worship Caesar. So Caesar said he's going to make uh, an example of him. And he wanted him to be paraded before the entire empire. So he marched from Antioch all the way to Rome. And uh, they could have just killed him there in Antioch. It would have been the easiest thing to do. But Caesar wanted to make a, a, a spectacle of him in the Colosseum. Now, this happened in 107, 108 A.D. Uh, it, it happened uh, probably 10 or 12 years after John died, the last of the apostles. And the thing that the emperor didn't anticipate is that by making him walk that distance, word spread, and several places Christians would come out to bring him food, to meet him, and he would encourage them. He only had a few moments, except a couple of times they let him have an, an evening with the Christians. But what um, Ignatius did is to every place he had time, 
he wrote a letter. Now, it was, it was poor grammar. It was run-on sentences. It was, it was hastily put together because he never knew when he was going to be able to write the letter. But at least in seven places like Ephesus and, and there in Rome, Philadelphia, he wrote one to Polycarp. We have seven letters that he wrote encouraging the church to be strong in the face of persecution. This is one of the favorite paragraphs I have in his letter to the Ephesians. Listen to this. Let it be uh, your care, therefore, to come more fully together. In other words, he says, make it a point to get together and do it with your whole heart. To the praise and glory of God, for when you meet fully together in the same place, this is in your notes, here it is. The powers of the devil are destroyed and his mischief is dissolved by the unity of your faith. Now, loved ones, that's what we're after. We're after and what God wants to do in our midst. Oh, I got to hurry. What God's got to do, wants to do in our midst is a gathering where the darkness of the devil is destroyed, where the power of darkness is broken. We need to come together where our children, our babies are prayed for in the nursery and, and sickness is broken off of them and, and baggage is broken off of them. We're not just babysitting. We are praying intercessory prayers for those little ones that are in the nursery and hats off to all of our nursery workers. It's phenomenal what's happening. We need to come with the expectation that Bella is going to be leading those children to the saving knowledge of Jesus and the fullness of the Holy Spirit. We need to come together knowing that Pastor Mike is going to have a phenomenal, phenomenal influence on high schoolers and middle schoolers. We, then we pass them off to uh, Bunk and Alyssa where our young adult ministries, they're, they're led through such a, an important time of life. And when we come together in here, this is just the tip of the iceberg. We want the power of God like we've never seen it before. But we've got to come with our hands clean. We've got to come with our baggage shut. We've got to stop coming to church expecting somebody else to fix our issues. And we've got to come with an attitude that we're going to forgive. And guys, the enemy has put together a perfect storm over these three years where almost nobody is forgiving. We're demanding that somebody make up for what they did to us. We're demanding that uh, all restraints be broken and we're living in a lawless society. And I don't believe this is what God is saying to us in the sense of this is the way I feel about you. But you need to understand, it's so important that we come to church the right way. This is what he wrote. And, and, and Paul, Paul referred to this in Corinthians. But this is what Malachi said. Oh, that one of you would shut the temple doors, that you would not light useless fires on my altar. I'm not pleased with you, says the Lord. I will accept no offering from your hands. Can you imagine... God saying, listen, just stay home next week. I don't want you to give an offering. I don't want to hear any more of your songs. Don't you dare lay hands on anybody. 
because your heart is corrupt. And God Almighty is saying, it's better for you to get together with those you can trust and straighten your issues out before you come together. You say, well, my Jesus wouldn't say that. <laughs> oh, let me tell you. If you're in worship and you remember that you have wronged your brother and you're waiting to give your sacrifice, he said, tie that lamb up, leave the sacrifice, go to your brother you've offended, make it right. He says, I'm not even interested in sacrifice unless your heart is right. Now that doesn't mean that if we're not perfect, we can't come to church. What did Paul say to the Corinthians? He said, when you come together for the Lord's table, he said, let a man examine himself. Be sure he's right. And then what did he say after you've examined yourself? He says, then receive the table of the Lord. The emphasis was, if there's something in your heart ought not to be there, deal with it. Get forgiveness for it. What did Jesus say? Go make it right and come back. Give the lamb. See, God is not giving us a get-out-of-jail-free card saying you don't have to come to church if your attitude's not right. Quite frankly, few of us come to church regularly with a, with a perfect attitude. We've all, man, I needed another hour of sleep. Or, who's, who's singing today, you know? <laughs> I hope you're not singing, but who's preaching today, you know? No, no, no. But God says this, there's a time, if you're not careful, you will have all the ritual down pat. You will have a perfect attendance record. You will give every time in the offering. But he says, I want you to know, I'm not happy with you. And it's not because of your weakness. It's because of your wickedness. These were not the words of critics. Neither were they, this is in your notes, the words of the self-righteous. We would never close the doors because of either of those groups. You know what I'm saying? We don't shut down church because of critics. If we did, we'd never meet because there's always critics. We don't shut down the doors because of hypocrites or self-righteous. We say, well, I don't want to be where there's a bunch of hypocrites. You'd go to a football game where the stands are loaded with hypocrites. They're hypocrites. They're not there because they love Carolina football. They're there because they love beer. They're hypocrites. But you don't stay home because of the hypocrites. But God, somebody get excited over here. God Almighty spoke this terrible estimation in the days of Malachi because the people had prostituted themselves in their style of worship. God himself brought seven indictments against the people of Israel in that day. And just something for you to note, this was after God restored the temple, restored Jerusalem. It just goes to show that even a delivered, restored people can fall backwards. So we have to be careful. Jesus explained to the woman in Samaria that a new day of worship is coming, a worship that was not based on geography, but on spirit and truth. That day is now. And that day is increasing as we see the Lord's day approaching. Now, what does the Lord say to us in light of this? Now, hey, we're in high gear. Stay with me. Hebrews says this, Let's hold firmly to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. 
And let's consider how to encourage one another in love and good deeds, not abandoning our own meeting together as is the habit of some people, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near, he says the deeper we get into this battle, the deeper we get into the last days, it's more important than ever for you to come to church. He said it, it's just so beautifully written. He says, don't get into the habit of abandoning the meeting that you always have. Don't get into that habit. Acts 2.42 describes the meetings they had. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, the breaking of bread, <coughs> and to prayer. So they said when you come together, you are focused on doctrine, teaching, and preaching. You are focused on fellowship. You are focused on the breaking of bread and the prayer. Those two things together represent the spiritual dynamic. Communion is not just communion. Communion is a spiritual encounter. Prayer makes something happen that wouldn't happen otherwise. He said, so come together to be encouraged. Come together to learn. Come together to receive the spiritual grace of God at work in your life. And that's a, that's a beautiful thing for us to remember. And it says, day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. There's a big argument over whether they were house churches or big gatherings. And it makes it clear in Acts chapter 2, they had both. They went to the synagogue. In the book of Acts, they would meet in public gathering places. Sometimes they met out by the riverside. Somebody said that was a small gathering, not if it was a big river, you know. The, the emphasis is there's a place for a big gathering and there's a place for a small gathering. Praise God. God will give you favor with the people. And most importantly, the Lord will add to their number day by day those who are being saved. Now let me read this little section to you and then we'll, we'll begin to wrap this up. Arguments abound concerning the importance of church attendance, including differences about church government, the methods of giving, the frequency and day of worship, the style of the music and preaching, and some have even said there should be no preaching at all. Others have said the institutional church has failed and would be unrecognizable to the early believers. In their eyes, the emphasis should be on house churches and smaller meetings or, or things facilitated online. And there's nothing wrong with any of those things. The it, it depends on the motivation of your heart. If you are in rebellion against the institutional church, I'd say even if you're right, you're at least partly wrong. The historical record, as well as passages like Acts 2, 42 to 47, lead us to believe the early church functioned in both smaller and larger settings. Some things happen in smaller settings that cannot easily happen in larger settings. Some things happen in larger settings that are unlikely in a smaller setting. The intimacy of a small setting may encourage participation and involvement, yet it is equally true that larger congregations can achieve things beyond the reach of a small group. There is probably more allowance than we realize for our cultural settings and our preferences, but there are also foundational truths that we must not allow to slip away from us. These things are understood best 
when we consider these six reasons. Christians came together from the very earliest of times. These may not be the only reasons they gathered, but we can be certain they were vitally important reasons. We believe they are still important reasons for us to gather today. So this is not about saying small groups are no good, house churches are no good, um, you know, meetings in your office are no good. No, I am, I, I'm like Paul when he spoke to the Philippians. He said, he said, I'm just glad the gospel is preached in whatever format. But you've got to understand, you can't put down a small gathering because there are people that come to this church, they are totally intimidated by the size. But if you get them in a house gathering, a small group with eight or ten people, they may open up and flourish. And, and there are people that do not want to be, you know, everybody knows what I'm doing. They can smell my cologne or whatever. But they find safety in a large gathering like this. So it's all legitimate. Now here, here are the Christian life lessons. And I'm, if you want to hear this from another perspective, maybe you can get the, I don't know if it's online or CD, how, how they get it, but you can hear the first service. I believe, number one, there is a resonance in the spiritual atmosphere right now. I know that's subjective. I can't prove it. I can't say it's here, here, and here. But I believe there is a resonance in the spiritual atmosphere. And I believe that this is a time for drawing close, not walking away. Um, I, God showed me something in a, uh, one of those waking moments. And all the animals were coming to the ark. And as I looked out over the ark, I said, how is Noah going to get all of the animals onto the ark? And then God reminded me, Noah didn't gather the animals. Noah opened the door and God brought in the animals. And loved ones, we've got to stop telling God which animals he can bring in, what color they are, what party they are. You know, we've got to just open the door. We've got to provide an ark and let God bring in the animals. Number three, this, I'm, I know there's always a reward in the secret place, but a friend of mine said this just in a conversation. He didn't even remember saying it after he said it, but he said, the Lord has shown me there is great reward in the secret place right now. There's always great reward in the secret place, but God is stirring stuff, guys. He's stirring stuff, and he's getting us ready for what's coming. Now, there is a time that your bond servant status begins to change. Um, and I'll tell you what I think I'm going to do. I think I'm going to talk about this last point next week, and I'm going to use the first service to catch them up with where you are. So that's what we're going to do. And Justin, when I can't remember what I said, you can remember it. Okay, we'll, we'll come back to this last point about the bondservant next week because the first service didn't even get to the note, okay? Um, we said that there was a time where there was no true God, no teaching priest, no law. In 2016, um, we... No, yeah, the spring of 2016, before the presidential election, I said four things that we needed to pray for. I, this was right after I said the next president will be the most hated president in America. I think it was right after. And it doesn't matter. It was along the same time. But we began to pray, and we prayed for over five years for this. 
that lies and liars would be exposed. We prayed that the truth would rise up. We prayed that the church would wake up. And we prayed that the nation would know what to do. Loved ones, let me tell you where I believe we are. <clears throat> I believe these things very, very strongly. I believe that what happened in 2020 was to reveal what is in us. I was shocked at things I saw and heard in government, in the church, all over the place in 2020. And I realized after about three months, what we were dealing with is God was rocking our boat sufficiently to help us know what was in us. Do you remember how you behaved in 2020? I mean, I, I'm not looking at anybody in particular, but I, I'm, I'm just I'm, I'm asking you a question. What was 2020 like to you in those early days of the of the pandemic? Um, when when things everything suddenly became racial, and things everything became political, and everything became wrong if it's not my view and it i mean i'm not talking about any group that was the change that came over america and it was a commitment to lawlessness like we've never seen 2020 was a chance and it, you know what i believe i believe it was god and his mercy he said i'm going to show you what's in you you my, my grandmother used to say, why are you sick? I, I don't know, grandmother. I don't know. And she had this kaopectate stuff. She said, we'll find out why you're sick. I thought the old girl was just giving me medicine. She, was, she just made me throw up. She said, now I know what's in you. I know why you're sick. I never thought it was mercy. But I got to admit, I usually felt better after she did it. And, and I want to tell you, God gave us a little medicine in 2020 that made what we are. And some of us, it was something beautiful. It was grace-filled. Others, just venomous, poison. And, and we lost a lot of people. We've had some leave and come back. We've had some of you just stay through it and we're going to make it. We've got folks that have not been back in church since 2020, but they are watching. They, they, physically, they can't get back, but they're watching. You know, I think one of the greatest things God did was give us live stream, not only us, but other churches, because now, now, we don't know how many people we have in our church. Honestly, we've tried to figure this out scientifically, basing attendance. We think we're somewhere between 1,500 and 3,500. You say, <laughs> That's a big gap. Yeah, it is. But there's no way we can accurately tell how many people are online. We, we see people are giving money. We hear people, yeah, I'm doing good. I'm watching. And, you know, you can't just count the number of people that watch online because there may be eight people in that room watching online. So we, we just don't know. That has been such a liberating thing to churches that just want God. I mean, you, you're not driven by numbers anymore. You don't get depressed you know, if we, if we only have 700, 800 one Sunday, you know what we do? We just say, ah, oh, that's okay. We had 2,500 online. <laughs> we don't know, but yeah. 
It's like, did I tell, I don't think I told this this service. I think I told it first service about the guy that asked me how many I was running in church. Okay. Yeah, there's this guy in general counsel. He was arrogant. I don't any other other way to put it. Numbers was everything to him, and he had a good sized church, about 400 people. It was, and, and especially in those days, that was a lot of people. And I just every every time I saw him, I was like, "How many are you running?" Pat you on the back. How many are you running? And I I think I was in Kansas City. He said, how many are you running? And I had, I think, about 80, 85. And uh, I said, uh, so I'm running about 800. <laughs> and he said, uh, uh, you, you run, you, yeah. I said, how many are you running? He, uh, how many are you running? I said, about 800. And he said, uh, well, I knew he had about 400 because he always posted what he had. He said, I don't know, maybe 500. And uh, he said, I, I, he couldn't even complete a sentence. And then he turned to somebody else. He said, How many of you run? And I, I realized I had totally bamboozled him. And I walked away, but I told my friend that was standing there having the conversation, I said, when he, when he gets all the color back in his face, tell him I'm running 800, but I've only caught about 80. I said, because I don't want to lie to him. But it did me so much good to see him totally. See, we don't have that anymore. I mean, we, we estimate, we, we have things we can measure, and, and I think our attendance is more than it's ever been. But I, I want to tell you, it's, it's such an amazing pressure to be lifted off to quit playing those games with people. 2020 was to reveal what's in us. 2021 was to reveal what we are. See, it's one thing for what's in you to be revealed, but that doesn't define you. You may not have liked what came up with in you in 2020 because you can do something about it. Or if it's good, you can play to the strength. Last year, God began to deal with us that said, well, now this is the way you reacted. Now, this is what you are. You need to change or you need to you know, increase, whatever. 2021 was a year of really explaining who we are on the basis of what's in us. But I tell you what 2022 has been. 2022 has been a year of def, uh, definition and division. Can I tell you what I believe has already happened in 2022? We are, we are beginning to understand this matters to me and this doesn't matter to me. And those that are part of the remnant are being divided to other people that are part of the remnant. And people, forgive me for saying it, but there are people that don't care anything about the glory of God. All they care about is their status quo or their agenda. And I want to tell you, God is separating those people. And, and, you know, I've had to start telling people, if, if you are the kind of person that doesn't believe in what we're doing, whether it's a pro-life agenda or a pro-gospel agenda, or if, if we, in, in, we, we, we are not conservative because of our political views, those don't come up. But when there are moral issues that are life, we're going for life. We're going for life. Now, we know we can't just say no, no abortion, 
without understanding, then that means there's a lot of babies we're going to have to adopt. There's a lot of foster children we're going to need to bring in our home. But loved ones, you need to understand, we're not going to say murder is okay because we've now got a new set of challenges. We're not going to do that. And if that's the kind of mindset you got, you're going to be so frustrated here. I'm not telling you you're not wanted, and I'm not telling you you got to leave, not by a long shot. I'm just telling you, we have made a decision after three years. We have tried to be accommodating of everybody. We've tried to be kind to every view. We've, kind, we've tried to be kind and, and love people that we knew were not in agreement with us whatsoever. And loved ones, we just can't. I mean, we can still love, and you're still welcome here. But you're going to be miserable because we are not going to bend on those issues of pro-life of righteousness we're just not going to bend we've tried to give people time to settle and i think maybe most people have but we, we're, we're we're not reading the letters anymore we're not taking the emails anymore we're not scheduling appointments with planned parenthood we're not doing that anymore we're going to love everybody the lord sends our way but we're not going to love them into darkness we're going to love them into light now I'm done. <laughs> the rest of it will lead us to that part about uh, the, the bond servant that we'll wrap up next week. Loved ones, if, if I said something poorly, forgive me. It was a mistake of the head, not the heart. If I, in an attempt to be humorous, offended you, I, I mean it, forgive me. But you need to understand, I love you. I've, I've spent 28 years with you. I love you more than I can say. And because I love you more than I can say, we're still committed to getting from Sears to Dillard's. We're not going to be sidetracked. We're not going to let a carnal culture tell us what we have to be and what we have to do. You say, Pastor, what if I'm here? What if I'm here and I'm gay? What if I'm here and I'm in a, 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 a marriage between the same sex? I'm in a same-sex marriage. Loved ones, anybody is welcome in this church, and we love you. And, and a lot of us need to learn to disagree with a lifestyle without being disagreeable to the person. I mean, that's, you got to understand, um, we, we've got to love and we've got to do good works, but at the other hand, you need to understand, we're not changing who we are, and we're not going to tell it would not be love for me to tell you you're all right when you're not all right. I've lost friends over this. I've lost friends that I thought would be lifelong friends because they say you're not willing to bend. Loved ones, we bend all the time, but we try to bend in the right places. We try to bend in the right places. I just want to remind you of this. When the rich young ruler was told that he had to sell everything and follow Jesus, he went away because apparently he wasn't willing to do that. We already know Jesus loved him. And Jesus watched him go away 
And we have pastors today that are telling us the church ought to say, hey, 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 come on back. Maybe we were a little harsh. Come on back. Maybe we were wrong. We need to understand the broken heart of Jesus when his word is rejected. But it's not our place to crucify others. It's not our place to dislike others. It's our place to have our hearts broken and say over and over again, whosoever will may come. I love you.